It's August 22nd, 2022. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 196 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Nice to be talking to you. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada, back in the Rook studio. Salam Dustan Aziz, Durud Bashama. Hello, Guru Shaya. Hi, Smart Pega. Hello. I'm. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I know, everybody's dying. We'll get to that. Uh, I'm, it's nice to be back in Toronto. The lights are on. Welcome the back. studio welcome is working. Back. The microphone is this thing on. Yes, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Kai Bird, uh, an American historian, journalist, columnist, Pulitzer Prize winning author. Mm-hmm. Uh, his latest book is called The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Uh, I can tell you it's a fantastic, you were a history student or a poli-sci student? Poli-sci. All right, I was poli sci history. If you're at all interested in politics mm-hmm. or history, uh, American history, Iranian history, this book is fantastic. I really enjoy. He's, he's I mean, he's a great writer. The unfinished presidency of Jimmy Carter. He's joining us from Washington D.C. in um, just a little while to talk about Carter vis-a-vis Iran, mm-hmm. the hostage crisis, the revolution the tensions within the Carter administration, the push and pull of whether to continue to be friendly with the Shah or to uh, jump ship as they eventually end up doing, whether to allow the Shah who was in exile into New York at that time, all of these questions that surrounded the Carter administration and of course the hostage crisis. Uh, But it's his take on Jimmy Carter, the president himself, that uh, is really interesting and somewhat um, revelatory. Kai Bird joining us in a little while uh, on this book that I have quite enjoyed and on some um, new perspective on what happened during that period leading up to the revolution and then the hostage crisis um, and the role of the president, Jimmy Carter. So we'll get to that as our feature guest today. Hey, talking to Persians. Yes. So this is our um, the first of our documentary series, travel series, going around the world and finding the Persians. This this is in London. It's talking to Persians, London, that we shot last fall. Uh, we released it a few days ago. If you haven't watched it yet, it's on. First of all, if you haven't watched it yet, you must. You must absolutely. I mean, come on. It's uh, on our YouTube channel uh, at. Uh, youtube.com slash rook media Media. (laughs) (laughs) i've never seen the channel myself but no no that's it um we have over fifteen thousand views uh in the in just the first few days haven't done any advertising no marketing uh and so that's pretty thrilling and um, we do hope that if you haven't checked it out yet, you will. Talking to Persians London at our YouTube channel. We've been putting up little clips from it on Instagram as well. And on uh, we put the audio version on our podcasts last week. But um, it's been really, really satisfying to get the kind of reaction we've been getting. Um, there's some amazing letters that have come in about talking to Persians. I should explain why I'm the only one talking because <laughs> you two, <laughs> first of all, Captain Reza's off on a, on a film shoot 
peons in Europe. Mm -hmm. The rest of the team is in an infirmary <laughs> and a hospital. Uh, I came back from, uh, I mean, my body clock is all over the place. I'll get to that. But I came back from my travels eastward. And uh, Shia, you've had COVID. Yes. I or have, you have COVID. Yes, I have COVID. Yeah. I thought you were. This was post COVID. Now, no, I. You th think you still have it? Yes, but I, I don't think that I'm contagious. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, Shai is wearing Not a anymore. hazmat suit. <laughs> He's look. He looks like one of those people who works at a nuclear laboratory. He's like a full on mask and the you know goggles and everything. Uh, well, thank you for you know rallying. And Shai was doing last minute editing on talking to Persians. Turns out while he had COVID. Oh my god! You see, and what were you doing? The dedication. You were at a club somewhere you know? <laughs> and now I can't you remember the last time i you, went to a club you apparently wait oh smart pega you're smart but you definitely go to club. i see you in instagram you're always at Those a club aren't somewhere. clubs they're lounges what are they? oh lounges okay sorry I the terminology is yes. getting me sad so now you are also sick i am but you but it's did not, not COVID. you think it's not covid no i know it's not covid uh -huh. i've done two pcr tests uh-huh um, and it's not COVID. You're I, exhibiting all the signs of COVID, COVID and you were hanging out with Shia, but <laughs> you don't think you have COVID. Well, I mean, the PCR test says otherwise. So oh, right. as far as those tests are concerned, it's not COVID. I've been told it's a chest infection. Oh, boy. Well, I feel great being surrounded by you guys. <laughs> Keeping our distance. But, uh, okay, well, you know, I, I'm. thank you both for rallying and uh joining me on uh, this this podcast because uh the other kids are away and and it's nice that um to have you here i'm sorry you're both in recovery <laughs> thank you um i man i was so i was in cambodia mm -hmm. and then i was in istanbul and so my button and in succession you know so a few days ago i was in istanbul mm -hmm. and then before that i was in cambodia and if people watch us on uh Instagram and stuff, they'll see I was posting little videos and stuff from there. So my body is completely fucked yeah. up. It's, it, it has no idea what's going on. How did you sleep on. last night? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, it's, I, I really, you know, there's all kinds of things happening with my body. My, my, my body's angry at me, mm -hmm. wondering what's, where are we? What time yeah. is it? Who are you? <laughs> I don't recognize you anymore. Um, but I had such a, a, a cool time. And it was really interesting releasing Talking to Persians from there, I was kind of I mean, I, I was in touch the whole time with you guys, of course, and 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 kind of watching it spread out. Um, like we say, we just we just put it up there a few days ago, and I hope people do check it out. YouTube.com/slash Rook Media for talking to Persians. We've got some letters that I'm going to read uh, after Kai Bird. Mm -hmm. We won't keep him waiting, but we'll have there. We are coming to you on RookMedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. Um, we're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and CastBox. If you like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Hey, if you want to support us or be part of our mission, you can become a patron of our show by pressing the Support Us button at our website. And uh, or you can become a sponsor. Mm -hmm. Get in touch with us at info at rookmedia.com. We love sponsors. Yes, we do. Yeah, <laughs> and we have some sponsors for our Talking to Persian series and it makes all the difference. So um, do be in contact if you wanna help us out. So now, Shia, you are you are feeling a little better? Yes, I think so. I mean, it, it's, it's the first time that I got COVID. Like, 
You were a holdout. Oh, wow. The rest of us, remember when Keon was giving us COVID a few times? Yes. <laughs> and everybody had COVID and you were, you yeah. were, you know, escaping the COVID. Yes. Now that everybody in the world has already yes, had it, yeah. now you've decided to get COVID. <laughs> yes. So it's weird. Like one day you feel good. Mm-hmm. The other day you feel very tired. And other today I mean, uh, like I'm, uh, I'm a little bit tired, but <sighs> I can. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you know where you got it? No. You don't have any suspicion? Yes, I do have a suspicion. I, I <laughs> went to a birthday party and probably from uh, It's so hard to track, though. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people who are not exhibiting symptoms, but they're carriers, and the people who are exhibiting symptoms, but past the contagious period. So mm. I'm really enjoying this new voice of yours. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. I like it, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a, uh, and, and you are, how long have you been feeling, uh, showing all the signs of COVID, but claiming it's not COVID? <laughs> Well, I think it was like Thursday night. I started to really feel it. But of course, I went out all weekend. Uh Um, And so I think I got really... Is it perhaps you just hung over or something? I really don't drink enough to be Uh this hungover. You just need some sleep? Maybe. Maybe Uh just some rest. And this is great listening for people. (laughs) (laughs) Just listening, hearing coughing and... I mean... Raspy voice. Jesus. Uh, Well, uh, I can tell you that... um, Ask me about my trip. Yeah, how was it? I was waiting to get to that, actually. Okay, go ahead. Well, first off, I mean, Istanbul I've been to, so I know it's incredible. But tell us about the first part of your trip, because that I haven't experienced. Well, uh, folks who know me know that I love Southeast Asia. Years Mm -hmm. ago, I went there there the first time and did some um, work with a development uh, group uh, organization, and I've just return there as often as mm-hmm. I can because I just love places like uh, um, well Vietnam and Laos and Philippines and and uh, but Cambodia being my favorite mm-hmm. place and I have some friends there now so I go to Phnom Penh and um, I just I, I, I love the ancient civilization I love the temples I love the um, the people uh, the energy there is I, I just I mean for folks who've gone to Cambodia they get it mm-hmm. They'll always go, yes, I love it too. And if you haven't gone, you kind of, especially Persians, they're like, Berim Cambodia, <laughs> you know, like, why are we, why are we going to go to Cambodia? You know, but I'm telling you, it is a really, really special place. Of course, you can go up to the big temples at Sam Reap, Angkor Wat, but um, it, Phnom Penh, which is the capital, which is where I go and where I have some friends. It's, it's just a special, mm-hmm. special vibe. Now this time. I uh, I didn't really get off the grid. Okay. That was kind of my hope, but no such luck. It didn't happen. <laughs> Between checking in on Rook yeah. and doing a bunch of work and then checking Arsenal scores. I mean, it was... Well, you know, I was going to say, you found a football fan. I saw that post on Instagram. I found football fans everywhere I go. Yeah. I look for Arsenal, you know. So, and yeah, I found a group uh, in Cambodia of Arsenal mm-hmm. fans. I mean, that guy posted something about a guy I found on the street. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I found... And in Istanbul, I found a little Turkish contingent of, uh, <laughs> oh, of wow. Arsenal fans as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like a club, you know. Yeah. And it's been it's a club that, you know, up until the last few weeks was just a you we were united in misery from uh, the, the years of difficulty, but now the Arsenal is doing really well and so it's actually an exciting little club to be in. Uh, my team, of course, Arsenal. But anyway, I also spent time in Cambodia, and when I was in Southeast Asia, that is, with um, I went to an elephant sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Now, have you ever spent any time with elephants, Shia? Yes, you have. In wow. Thailand. Oh, in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. would have gone. Did you go to a sanctuary when you? No, no, oh. no. 
no. But so uh, yeah, you what? You just encountered them somewhere? <laughs> no, like the there is this, no, there is a city called uh, Iota and something about uh-huh. it. Uh, like taxis, they're literally elephant, and people live with elephant. And I spent some time in that city. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've been waiting to have this conversation with you. I haven't talked to you much about my trip, but when I spent the day with the elephants, I was thinking oh. about you, Shia. <laughs> they're very. Um, apparently they're very smart mm-hmm. i mean uh but they're really lovely like they don't they oh, don't yeah. uh i mean they're huge yeah. you know but they're very very anybody who's and y- y- this the one sanctuary that i went to is sort of committed to they these are rescue elephants mm-hmm. and it's committed to kind of letting them do what they do so you don't ride them or get on right, them or anything right. you just kind of hang out with them and bathe with them and throw mud <laughs> on them and they, they like they like being washed well, in mud i read somewhere that elephants react to us the way we react to puppies <laughs> oh yeah so they think we're so they know, think adorable. like we're cute and you know yeah <laughs> i don't know about that i think they just like food Cause I mean, I'm sure. Because <laughs> they gave us a bunch of, like the sanctuary has just bales and bales of like pineapples mm-hmm. and um, like full on, like a giant pineapple. Oh, wow. And you just hold it and the elephant with his trunk, you know, or her <laughs> trunk, scoops it up and, and then throws it in their mouth. I mean, they're, they, they eat. Yeah. Apparently, all they do is eat. They sleep for about four hours and then the rest of the day they just they eat. eat. Interesting. Yeah. How, hence the fact that they eat like, eat an, like elephant. an elephant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but there were, it was such a very peaceful, yeah. loving, lovely animal. I fell in love with uh, with Vanessa, the elephant. The elephant. Yeah, we had a little relationship, <laughs> short lived, nice. however, because I had to fly away. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I have actually some little videos of Vanessa and I hanging out, and wow, I remember the days when I used to tap her. Snout, and <laughs> she would look at me and wonder if there's more pineapple to be eaten. And, With loving uh, eyes, that was basically the relationship. But still, <laughs> uh, and then of course uh, Istanbul. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we're hoping to do a. If you do, if you have watched Talking to Persians London, mm-hmm. or um, which is the premise again is uh, going to a different city in the diaspora where we're finding who the Iranians are and. Um, and what they're up to. Uh, and uh, in this case, in the case of London, of course, is the added twist of going to my, the place yes. of my birth and uh, my home, the house that I was born in and and what ensues from that interesting little uh, trip. Um, but we're hoping to do this in different cities. So mm-hmm. if you're listening to us and you have an idea about where we should come and why we should come there, and you know maybe kind of somewhat alternative in the sense that Obviously, talking to Persians Los Angeles or talking to Persians <laughs> Toronto uh, is going to be a no-brainer in terms of finding the, a large community there. But there's some places that we're talking about going to that um, um, that have fertile or growing Persian mm-hmm. communities that you wouldn't necessarily think of. Anyway, Istanbul's again, a little bit more obvious, but there's a huge and growing Persian community there. And I can't wait to do a, a talking. No Persians in Cambodia. No Persians in Cambodia. Couldn't find any. Really? Couldn't find. I mean, maybe there was one visiting or something. I tried. Find, there was no. You know, there was once a, a Middle Eastern restaurant when I was there, I was there a few years ago. It's since closed. Like there's no. There's mm. no. No Persians. I'm surprised. That, I feel like you could really? almost find Persians everywhere. No, in Thailand, there's a lot of Persians. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, not in. Not, I couldn't find any in Cambodia. I mean, I. 
if you're listening to us yeah. right now in Cambodia <laughs> and you're Persian, please let, let me know. know. I'll come next time and, and break some bread with you. But no, I couldn't find any. But of course, then you get to Istanbul and you're of walking course. along the street and you hear Persian being spoken. Probably more than anything else. <laughs> uh, well, Turkish is the most. Yeah. But you know this thing about Istanbul where they don't really speak English. Really? Yeah, it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating that English is the lingua franca of the world mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Like anywhere, especially in the 21st century now, anywhere you go in the world, people speak English. Right. Like if a Polish guy is meeting a uh, an Argentinian in um, Germany, mm-hmm. they speak English, English to each yeah. other, right? Various forms of English, right. but yeah. But in Istanbul, I mean, getting a cab, and I I had to sort of speak broken Turkish, Turkish using Google Translate. Yeah, there was just no. Wow. Yeah, and I've, I found this regularly in Istanbul. It's very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. A global city, a cosmopolitan yeah. city, a city that depends on tourism, is but that there's that very they little don't English. Speak it, or is it that they're? It's more of a pride thing that they don't want to speak it. You know, I asked a couple of um, Turkish folks about this. It's very nationalistic culture. Right. The Turks are very proud yeah. of Turkey, and good for them. You know, but um, uh, I don't know if that's the reason. Mm. I don't. I, I actually don't know what the reason is. There's less of a premium on learning it. I guess maybe. I mean, I would guess at this point, based on the the audience that we have, that in Iran there's more people speaking English oh, than there are sure. in Turkey. You think so for sure? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, recently, anyone who I talk to who has recently come from Iran here speaks perfect English. Yeah. And it's always been a question for me, like, wh- where is it that you're learning or You're not including or? Shia in that one. <laughs> 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 no, but really, I, I think it's something that a lot of people pursue in Iran now, or at least from what I've experienced. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely... Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'm 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 surprised. In Turkey, there was a lot mm-hmm. less of that. A lot of hand gestures for, uh, <laughs> you know, what I please order, please give me this. I can't get enough of Turkish street food. I will, I will, you know, I could just every day. That would be my uh, my mission to yeah. find some more street food. Uh, and it's just it's such a and and Istanbul, of course, being the for folks who haven't gone there. Uh, I know we have an audience in Turkey. I'm guessing uh, a bunch of the, the folks listening are in Istanbul, but it's it's all about being the nexus. Mm-hmm. It's the meeting place of East and West, mm-hmm. of Asia and Europe, of Christian and Muslim, mm-hmm. of old and new, uh, of yeah. modern. And I mean, it's very it's it's just such a fascinating place. It's the only place I can think of in the world where you come out of some. I mean, you could come out of some very Western type of nightclub uh, at four or five in the morning and then mm-hmm. hear the prayer call, you know, across the city. And yeah. I mean, where do you get that, right? Um, so that's a it's a pretty Seriously. special place. So we have to do a talking to Persians Istanbul. Definitely. I, I feel like it's going to be five episodes long, though. <laughs> five hours. Like how, how do you do how one? Do you, yeah. You know? There would be so much to Even see. with London, we had so much content and we had to distill it into mm-hmm. to one hour. It wasn't easy. Next time with Cambodia, you come with me, Shai. You lived in Thailand for a while. Yes, yes. And you love that that oh, part of the world. I, it's like heaven. Yeah. Why did you ever leave there then? Why didn't you stay in Thailand? I went to United States in uh-huh. in yeah, in seeking a better life. Uh-huh. But when I get to United <laughs> States, <laughs> it wasn't so much better. I, I understood that. Oh, Thailand was the uh-huh. place. What I did you What did you love about living in Thailand? Um, 
there is absolutely no judgment over there. Mm. Uh, you wear whatever you want, you and always people laugh at you, and you know, I I I live at peace. You know, mm. like that. That's the best definition. Peace lives there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, if you think that, I mean, I I Thailand is beautiful and lovely people, and uh, but I found it. I always do find it, and you have to kind of fly through Bangkok. I was there for a couple of days to get to mm. Cambodia or yeah. something like that. But, but uh, compared to someone like Cambodia, it's I, very I, touristy. You know, uh, yeah. Cambodia is you remove all of that, and you're just in a kind of and and it's a place that's just been through, kind of like Iran, except Cambodia is sort of on the other side of it now yes. compared to Iran, but yes. really, really turbulent last oh, half yeah. century yeah. and and these people are resilient and they've gone through that and they still have a smile on their face and they're welcoming yes. and they're they you know want to speak english and it's a it's just a very special place yeah. i think next time i go next to cambodia you must you. come yeah, you must yeah, come for sure, yeah. uh and and then we'll be close to uh your thailand, thailand. your sydney you have uh, yeah, you have yeah, family, family in australia there. yeah 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 we got to get you to that part of the world sure. Um, hey, coming up on this program, Kai Bird, of course, joining us in a little bit. Next week on this show, in the Rook Studio, mm-hmm. you ready for this? 25 Band. Yes. The um, dynamic duo who've, who've done huge things in, in, in Persian music, uh, big stars. Yes. They're going to be in the Rook Studio. It's going to be lovely to have them here. 25 Band here and also in the coming days on Rook Behza Balur in the yes. Rook Studio makes his return this time in our studio so we look forward to that and much more coming up in september on rook in the meantime a big thank you to hamid reza safipur for helping to make this episode of rook get to your ears and eyes hamid safipur luxury custom homes if you're in the toronto area or an iranian canadian you, you probably know the name safipur Hamid himself got his master's in civil engineering and got into the field of building and consulting on luxury homes over three decades ago. And in the last 20 years, team Hamid and Nina have made this Safipur name one of the tops in the business, a name you can trust to buy your dreamland and your build your dream house. Safipur Luxury Homes have now teamed up with Remax and they're moving into also doing exotic high-rises that are beyond things we've seen in Toronto before. If you're thinking to buy or sell or build your dream house, if you are anywhere near the Toronto area or interested in buying here, get in touch with Safipur. S-A-F-I-P-O-O-R, Safipur.com. Thanks again to Safipur for being a sponsor of Rook. All right. Smart Pega and Groovy Shia will get to some letters about talking to Persians in just a little bit, but let's get to our feature guest. There is no event more impactful on the cleavage between Iranian and American relations in recent decades than the hostage crisis of 1979. This was the event that began on November 4th, 1979, when student activists or militants in Iran seized 66 American citizens at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and held 52 of them hostage for more than a year. 
The crisis took place during the chaotic aftermath of Iran's Islamic Revolution, and the precipitant for the crisis was a raging anger towards the United States on the part of the revolutionaries in Iran, and particularly anger at the administration of President Jimmy Carter for allowing the exiled and ill Shah of Iran, who was deeply unpopular at this point and had fled the country, to seek and receive asylum in America. This followed a confused and vacillating period where President Carter had, of course, supported and then not really supported and then not at all supported the Shah as revolution occurred in Iran. And the event marked a major political liability for Carter. Indeed, the hostage crisis would hang over his neck for the final 444 days of his presidency. So what was the role of Jimmy Carter vis-a-vis the Shah, the revolution and the hostage crisis? And how might there have been any other outcome if Carter Carter had managed his foreign affairs differently. Well, to reflect on these questions, I'm joined by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who has recently published a book about Carter and this very subject. Kai Bird is an American historian, journalist, columnist, and acclaimed author who has gained global recognition for his biographies of political figures. Mr. Bird is an elected member of the prestigious Society of American Historians. He was born in Eugene, Oregon. As a child of a U.S. Foreign Service officer, he spent most of his childhood in Jerusalem, Beirut, Saudi Arabia. Cairo and Bombay. He came back to the U.S. to continue his education and obtained a master's in journalism from Northwestern University. Mr. Bird's publications include The Chairman, John J. McCloy, and The Making of the American Establishment. His award-winning book, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, Crossing Mandelbaum Gate, Coming of Age Between the Arabs and Israelis, and The Good Spy, The Life and Death of Robert Ames. Mr. Bird's latest book from 2021, last year entitled The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter, is the one we're focusing on today and right now. Kai Bird joins me from Washington, D.C. today. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show, and it's a really, really interesting book you've written about Jimmy Carter. Yeah, well, you know, most uh, most people think of Jimmy Carter as this fuzzy hu- humanitarian do-gooder who builds houses for Habitat for Humanity and, you know, was a great ex-president, but they regard him as a failed president. Yes. And uh, my narrative, I think paints a quite different picture of a man who is actually extremely political and uh, politically devious at times and ambitious and smart and a uh, very complicated man. It's it's interesting that you should begin there because I, I, I obviously I'm going to focus on the hostage crisis in our chat, but I was going to ask you this as a general question first because you're quite right. The general vibe on Jimmy Carter, if you will, and these days seems to be nice, decent ex-president, as you say, who was a failure as a president. And the failure part, of course, is animated by what seemed like a vacillating, capricious, messy policy when it came to Iran by the late 70s and, of course, the hostage crisis. I was surprised in your book by your depiction of Carter as I mean, he's unquestionably smart. We knew that part, but also headstrong, tenacious, even arrogant, determined to win at all costs. How do we reconcile these different impressions of him? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to reconcile because the impression that we have of Jimmy Carter just doesn't fit the reality of the man. He was exactly what you have described him as, tenacious, and, and he's certainly decent, but he 
I, I argue in the book he's probably the smartest, most intellectually capable president who's occupied the Oval Office in the 20th century, and uh, hardworking, and, uh, you know, politically smart, too. So <laughs> it's hard to figure out why the, the, the myth, the per public perception of Carter is just the opposite of, of the reality of the man. You know, he doesn't seem very politically smart, uh, certainly in retrospect, and I guess at the time, when it came to Iran. Um, there's, there's. I mean, let me begin in, in that this famous, infamous toast that Carter does to the Shah of Iran on New Year's Eve uh, leading into 1978. That's it could be, because it's often discussed as a, a painful example of how tone-deaf Carter and his, his administration were to the unrest that was bubbling in Iran and would lead to a revolution a few months later. Why, why was Carter so bad at reading the room, so to speak, uh, at, at a crucial moment when it came to Iran? Well, the toast in you know at that late date was it was inept as it turns out in retrospect. But at the time, every American official and every CIA estimate at the time was saying that the Shah's regime was stable and was going to be there for years, if not decades, to come. And Carter, you know, came in pledging to be, uh, to put human rights at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And so he was actually inclined to be rather critical of the Shah's regime, but he was persuaded that, you know, the Shah was there, he wasn't going anywhere, it was a stable regime. Uh, and so on that trip, he gave the toast. Uh, I don't think it was a matter of being tone deaf. It was just a matter of bad intelligence and the conventional wisdom was so set and concrete at that point uh, that he didn't resist it. Um, but as you can see in the narrative, he certainly had doubts about the Shah as things progressed and, and as the revolution gathered steam, uh, he was, you know, he played a quite different role. Yeah, well, actually, one of the fascinating things you say in your book, because you, you talk about this, how as we get into 1978, uh, you write that the CIA is saying Iran is, uh, literally the quote from the CIA, Iran is not in a revolutionary situation. This is by the summer of, the of 1978, demonstrating how um, the CIA doesn't always get it right. Um, right. But you say, interestingly, that Carter's instincts were different from that, and that he should have listened to his own instincts. What, what makes you say that, and what were his instincts? Well, his instincts were to be critical of uh, an authoritarian Pahlavi regime, uh, and he, he genuinely believed in uh, human rights and val the values of human rights, and, and so he was skeptical of, of the Shah. But, uh, so he should have followed his own instincts. You know, this is the man who appointed Pat Darien, a civil rights activist, to become Assistant Secretary of State for a newly created division of the State Department on human rights. And he defended Darien, who was a strong critic of the Iranian regime. And, uh, you know, people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, his national security advisor, was sort of a typical Cold War hawk. 
who thought of the Shah as an ally and an ally against the Russian communist bear. And uh, but Carter was his instincts were to side always with Pat Darian, and his instincts were to be critical of Zbigniew Brzezinski and to be critical of the Shah. So as the revolution suddenly got started in September of '78 with street demonstrations, you know Carter took five minutes, a five-minute break from his negotiations with Anwar Sadat yeah, the phone and, call. and Camp David to right. have a phone call with the Shah and remonstrate with him, saying, I hope you can respect human rights and also restore law and order, but respect human rights. And that was, that was the end well, of the call. Well, the, the call happens on right after, on September 8th, 1978, right after the army has opened fire on a massive crowd of thousands in Tehran's Jalas Square. Exactly. Yeah, and and so uh, Carter's in, in at Camp David with Sadat and Begin, and he he calls the Shaw. I mean, what happens in this call? Well, I just briefly described it in the book, and it, it, it's a very short conversation. But he he sort of in a perfunctory way says, you know, I hope you can restore law and order, and I hope you can respect human rights. <laughs> <laughs> two contradictory instructions at, right, at, at right. that moment. Um, but the Shah, you know, characterized the demonstrators and, this, you know, the street demonstrators as communists and uh, subversives and indicated he was going to crack down on them. But, you know, Carter was very much distracted. He wasn't paying attention to Iran at this point. Uh, his intelligence from the CIA was that the regime was stable and was going to be there forever. Um, and he was concentrated on trying to bring peace to between Arabs and Israelis. So was, you, you say that this call was somehow seen or promoted as the Shah, uh, as Carter continuing to stand by the Shah at this point. Yes. Well, I think that's, you know, unfortunately how it was interpreted by the Iranian people. Um, and, you know, probably by the press. But it was a perfunctory phone call. It was, you know, something he uh, was told he, he had to do to uh, respond to what was happening in, in Iran. But he wasn't paying attention, and he hadn't, you know, realized, he, certainly at, in September of 1978, he didn't realize that a revolution was brewing. Um, but he did make the point that the Shah should pay attention to human rights and try to respect the human rights of all Iranians. But this was, you know, uh, it was, as I said, it was a perfunctory phone but call. It, but it, it also really, as you, as you point out, it, it underscores the paradox at work here, right? Which is, um, please respect human rights. Also, please crack down on the protesters. So, uh, I, I mean, you know, what, what's the advice there? It's, it, and that seems to be um, a symbol of what happens in this period with the, the Carter administration. How significant is the rivalry at this point that's taking place in the Carter admin between, specifically when it comes to Iran policy, between, as you say, Carter's national security advisor, Brzezinski, and his secretary of state, Cyrus Vance? Right. Well, it was very significant. And as the, the revolution grew more and more ominous as such, and the street demonstrations grew more, took to the streets and, and threatened the regime, uh, Brzezinski and 
uh, Cy Vance began to argue about how to respond to this. And Carter, again, his instincts were to side with Cy Vance, who argued that we can't intervene, we can't launch a coup d'etat, we can't control the situation, whereas Zbigniew Brzezinski was arguing, oh, we have to show that we are standing by our longtime ally, the Shah. We have to consider a possible um, green light for a coup d'etat. Uh, you know, Brzezinski was again playing the sort of Cold War hawk, and Cy Vance was saying, no, no, let's calm down now. You know, we, the in intelligence is, is mixed now. We don't know what's going to happen. We're not in control of the situation. We have to be prepared for perhaps the Shah falling, and by December, you know, within just a few months, you know, people forget how quickly this right, happened. Right. Um, by December, it was clear that the Shah was on his way out, and uh, they brought in George Ball to do a, a quick review of all the intelligence. And this veteran diplomat bluntly said, you know, we've got to cut our losses. The regime is falling apart, and there's no chance for uh, its survival. So we have to prepare the way to try to deal with the, the successor regime, whoever they may be. Um, and of course, then there was an argument about, well, maybe the, there'll be social democratic moderates who will come to power right, with right. the religious leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, as a spiritual figurehead. That was the hope um, that people like George Ball and Cy Vance were sort of peddling. And, you know, foreign service officers in the State Department who spoke Farsi and had some expertise about the situation were hoping that perhaps that would play out as the scenario. But right. as we all know, things quickly went a different route down the road to a theocracy. I was, I was a little um, confused uh, or puzzled by Brzezinski's actions in your book. I was trying to get my head around it because he, I mean, he's clearly the hawk in the room. But as you describe him, he's the one counseling Carter late into 78 that there's not going to be a revolution. Um, and then he's advocating for harsh military action when things get dire. So uh, he, he doesn't seem to have a good sense of what's happening on the ground either, right? Oh, Absolutely. You know, I argue in the book against all the conventional wisdom here in Washington, D.C., that Zbigniew Brzezinski was way in over his head. Uh, you know, he was, uh, he's a Polish-American who uh, his foreign policy expertise was entirely focused on the Cold War and the rivalry between America and the Soviet Union. And he had this Polish animus against the Soviets, against everything Russian. And he saw every conflict, every foreign policy issue in the world through this Cold War prism. So he looked at what the Shah's regime stood for, and he saw, oh, this is a, a uh, right-wing, anti-communist regime, so we should support it. <laughs> and he knew nothing about the internal politics of Iran. You know, I, I think... This is true not only of Iran, but of the Middle East in general and mm. of Asia. Uh, again, he, he had this sort of very narrow view of the world. And uh, I think he led Carter down the wrong path many times. And Carter, what is 
peculiar in my narrative is that Carter <laughs> sort of enjoys Zbig's company, enjoys arguing with him, but uh, rejects 99% of his advice, <laughs> and but refuses to fire him, keeps him on, and slowly Zbig sort of poisons the well. Uh, and poisons Carter's relationship with the State Department and with Cy Vance. And in the end, it's Cy Vance who ends up resigning, not Brzezinski. But you're quite, um, right, you're, you're quite right that it seems like, in, in retrospect today, posthumously, uh, Zabig uh, Brzezinski is, is seen as some sort of foreign policy guru, you know, that he was this um, um, sagacious uh, foreign policy leader, uh, which is certainly not what we get in your book. Yeah, no, it's not at all what you get in my book. I, <laughs> I'm very critical of Zbigniew Brzezinski. I think he was wrong repeatedly on many, many difficult issues. You you say something interesting. I think you said it in, in an interview where you said you appreciate that Carter understood what he didn't understand about Iran. Why Why does he deserve credit for that? Oh, because, you know, too many foreign policy uh, experts uh, claim to know too much about the rest of the world when, in fact, they know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and they're uh, ignorant often of the internal politics of uh, a complicated society like Iran. And Carter was just the opposite. He was a, a, a man who, you know, came out of Georgia politics, had no foreign policy background, and he was perfectly willing to admit to the fact that uh, he didn't know a lot about the rest of the world. And he was kind of skeptical of these th this foreign policy establishment that claimed to know everything. He, he, so, was, he was really invested in the Middle East peace process, so the accords with Begin and Sadat. Why wasn't he more invested in Iran? Well, that's also sort of a complicated issue about the stem goes back to his own personality and history. Uh, remember, he's a Southern Baptist, born-again Christian. Uh, he has no foreign policy experience, but he has, you know, read the, the Bible repeatedly. <laughs> and he has this notion about uh, when he achieves power, when he wins this very improbable election in 1976 and comes from nowhere to win the White House, uh, he has this notion that once he has won power, he should do good with it. And he looks at the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli conflict and he thinks, well, maybe I can bring peace to this troubled region, the region he, he calls the Holy Land. He mm. refers to it as the Holy Land. Um, so he becomes obsessed with the issue and against the advice of Brzezinski and even Cy Vance and, you know, the entire foreign policy establishment says, you know, Mr. President, you don't want to take on Arab-Israeli peace. It's a black hole. It's a tar baby. It's a hopeless issue. It's uh, Carter thinks that, no, he can, with the force of his personality and his personal diplomacy and his personal relationship with Anwar Sadat in particular, mm. Uh, he can make progress, and indeed he does at Camp David. I, I want to get to the, the hostage crisis and the, the meat of what we're 
talking mm-hmm. about today. Uh, uh, let me ask you for a little context to begin with. You know, I was I was a little kid at the time who had just come from Canada, but I can remember, and I certainly remember this because I was Iranian, that the hostage crisis leading the news on American TV networks seemingly for months, every single night. I mean, this is the pre-OJ and the White Bronco 24-7 cable news era. Just, right. just, just how big was the hostage crisis in Iran when it came to the attention of American media, citizens, and in fact, the, the entire world? Oh, it was an enormous story. And, uh, you know, Nightline made its name with Ted Koppel starting that, pro- that news program and that was on very late every night. And it would start with, well, this is day 23 of the hostage crisis or day 340 of the hostage crisis. And it was, you know, agonizing. And they would uh, report in great detail about the back-channel negotiations of attempting to get the release of the hostages. And, uh, you know, it was an enormous story, and it was deeply politically damaging to the Carter presidency. And ironically, you know, he actually was not responsible and tried to do everything to prevent the hostages from being taken, and he actually predicted if he in his diary, he made a prediction months before the hostages were taken that if he gave political asylum to the Shah, uh, he was afraid that American hostages would be taken at our embassy in Tehran. And then what would he do? That's a, that's a, that's a perfect segue. Thank you, because I wanted to, that's where I wanted to go with this. The immediate precipitant for the student action of seizing the U.S. embassy in, in Tehran was the exiled Shah being allowed refuge in America. Why, after strongly resisting the idea, did Carter relent and allow the Shah, who was in exile and dying of cancer, uh, to enter the U.S. for medical treatment? Why did he give in to Kissinger and Rockefeller? Yeah, that that again, it's a tragedy and uh, I think no longer a mystery. We know what happened, but uh, yeah, the, the Shah goes into exile and uh, initially to Egypt, and then Morocco. And uh, for months, Carter is badgered by Henry Kissinger, a retired national security advisor, and David Rockefeller, the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, and uh, John McCloy, a powerful Wall Street lawyer. And uh, they actually set up a private lobbying operation dubbed Project Alpha, and they appropriate money for this to hire a publicist, and uh, they assign a lawyer from McCloy's law firm to work full-time on this, and they set out a schedule of uh, where every week someone in the Carter administration is called up or taken out to lunch and lobbied to... um, stand by the Shah, our old friend, and give him political asylum. And Carter says no repeatedly for months and months. And Because he knows, because he thinks this is going to ignite. Well, uh, he, it, he looks at the Shah as a deposed dictator. Why should we do anything for him at this point? And yes, there will be some political consequences perhaps in Iran, and this will make it our relations with the new regime even more difficult and what's the what's the upside to it 
And the upside, he's told by Henry Kissinger and McCloy and Rockefeller, is, well, we have to show that we're standing by our, our allies, our old friends. Uh, this is, you know, it was political theater, but in fact what was going on was that behind the scenes, Chase Manhattan Bank, I believe, was trying to get access to money. They had at risk $500 million in loans that the Shah had taken out. And uh, remember, they got persuaded Carter to freeze Iranian assets. Right. And so they were trying to get, you know, it was all about money. But that, that explains McCloy. Is that also Rockefeller and Kissinger's? Yeah, very much for- it was Rockefeller. And Kissinger went along with it. And, you know, Kissinger also, I'm sure, truly believed in the argument that we have to show the rest of the world that we stand by our former, you know, our, our, our long-standing friends, regardless of whether they're in or out of power. Um, it was ridiculous. And Carter understood that it was bad diplomacy and might have terrible consequences. But finally, in late October of 79, he when he learns that Cy Vance is changed his mind because of the information that the Shah is sick with cancer and is ailing and needs medical treatment in New York City. So again, on humanitarian grounds, Carter finally gives in and agrees to allow the Shah to come to New York. And of course, four days later, this precipitates the hostage crisis. How how misguided uh, do you believe this decision would prove to be? And how, and how do you believe the course of history would have been different if Carter had not let the Shah in? Yeah, I think if Carter had appointed George Ball as his national security advisor instead of big Brzezinski, this never would have happened. <laughs> and history would have taken a different course. And the Shah would have gone into exile and there would have been no hostage crisis. Um, I don't think Carter could have done anything to stop the revolution. Uh, Khomeini was riding to power, and Khomeini, as we, you know, looking back on it, he was determined to create a theocracy. And I think all of that would have happened. But uh, Khomeini, when the Shah was given asylum, the students took over the embassy, and he seized the political opportunity to create a crisis that would allow him to engage, you know, to orchestrate a purge internally of the new revolutionary regime and get rid of so-called moderates like Ibrahim Yazdi and Gopsadeh eventually and and others. And uh, this allowed him to cement his power and to create a really cruel theocratic dictatorship. So it was extremely unfortunate that Carter was persuaded by Brzezinski and McCloy and Rockefeller to allow the Shah to come to New York. And as it turns out, we now know that medically speaking, the Shah would have gotten better treatment outside of America. (laughs) In fact, the doctors in in New York mistreated his uh, medical maladies and made things worse. But that's another story. This hostage crisis becomes an, an albatross that hangs around Carter's neck, as I said in the introduction, for his final 440 days of his presidency. Um, his instincts in the beginning are try, to try to find a peaceful solution. Um, nothing works. 
how do we explain the vacillation in this period? Is this, again, the divisions within his administration? Uh, wh- why, why does it seem like there, there was no clear policy um, for something so profoundly important uh, on the world stage? Well, again, I, I would take issue with the word vacillation. I don't think he vacillated. In fact, he decided from the very beginning that he was not going to use force as Brzezinski, for instance, was urging him to do, he because he feared that using force in this situation would endanger the lives of the hostages. So he sided with Cy Vance again and argued that diplomacy and time would take care of this. And he did so knowing that this was going to be very politically costly. Um, and so he stuck by his convictions on this, for months and months, up until late March, when he finally, after months of frustrating back-channel negotiations and private emissaries going to Paris and trying to get someone inside the Iranian regime to talk to them, and failing, getting close again and again and yet failing, Finally, in late March, Brzezinski persuaded him to explore the uh, the military option of a helicopter rescue mission. Right, Desert One. Desert One. And, you know, in my narrative, I think I make a very convincing argument that this re- helicopter rescue mission was doomed from the beginning. It was just way too complicated, too many moving parts. If the hel- helicopters had not Uh, had mechanical failures and some of them had been forced to turn back and if they'd actually made it into Tehran with the rescue operation uh, dozens of people would have been killed Iranian and probably many of the American hostages it was a disaster and and it was a disaster in you know what happened in, in in the end, it pretty failed. bad look for Carter at that point. And it and it was a a political blow to Carter. Yeah, there's there's longstanding speculation, as you know, and you and you write about that there was a a deal in place between the Khomeini regime and the CIA to delay the release of the hostages until after the election, uh, and that then Reagan, if he assumed the presidency, which he did, would treat the Iranians favorably, ensuring their access to military goods and, and frozen assets. And this would actually form the seeds of the Iran-Contra scandal. How much validity is there to that? Well, you're referring to the October surprise, the so-called October surprise, and I devote a whole chapter by that name you to do. To this issue. And it was, uh, you know, it's very controversial. Historians argue about what exactly happened. But um, I, I've, I found documents, uh, and I think a critical document that shows that indeed in the summer of 1980, as the hostage crisis was going on and on, uh, Ronald Reagan, who was becoming the Republican nominee for president, his campaign manager was Bill Casey, and Bill Casey disappeared for a long weekend, first to London in late July of 1980, and then made, I argue, a, a, a secret trip to Madrid, Spain, where he met with a representative of the Ayatollah Khomeini. This meeting occurred, I believe, and Casey apparently told the, the Khomeini emissary that, uh, you know, you 
guys will get a better deal from my candidate, Ronald Reagan, who understands Iran and is a, a friend of Iran and <laughs> unlike <Right>. Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and uh, I think this, you know, was almost an act of treason on Casey's part. I don't think Reagan necessarily had to know about it, but Casey loved sort of skullduggery of this kind and covert operations, and indeed he later was appointed by Reagan as his CIA director. But this is exactly the kind of sort of off-the-book covert operation that Casey loved to engage in, and I think he did it, and it contributed to prolonging the hostage crisis because there were negotiations going on, and in September there, they were very close to a deal working out, you know, uh, a financial arrangement and a release of all of the hostages. And at the last minute, it went, it was delayed once again. Right. Uh, and, and that led to, uh, you know, time running out for Carter in terms of the election. And the conspicuous timing of the release of the hostages uh, um, when Reagan is, uh, comes to power. Uh, would you go so far as to say that the, the Khomeini regime saw the incoming Reagan administration as uh, the, these are guys we can do business with? Yes. I think Khomeini understood that uh, Reagan had done, had his people had made this overture, um, and Khomeini had it in his head that Carter was an enemy of the Iranian people because of his famous toast, <laughs> the Shah, in December of 77, and because of his perception that Carter had opposed the Iranian revolution, which I think is an exaggeration. And as we've talked about, I think Carter was very ambivalent and, and critical of the Shah's regime. And uh, yet Khomeini had this perception that Carter was an enemy, and he did everything he could to sort of see him defeated. It's a it's a fascinating period and it's a fascinating book and I really appreciate the time you've given us. Let me ask you a couple of final questions uh, about Carter and the way he's seen in the through the the, the lens of history uh, four decades removed now. I mean, the Carter administration's term is often portrayed as a period of international impotence, you know, especially due to the Iranian hostage crisis. Is that mm -hmm. fair to Jimmy Carter? No, it's not fair. Uh, you know, it's true that he became impotent as such through his refusal to use military force. If he had, right after the hostages were, were taken, if he had mined the Iranian harbors or launched air raids and killed a bunch of people and maybe saw some of the hostages killed, he would have been more popular. That would have been a politically advantageous thing for him to do. But Carter really had principles, and <laughs> he was willing to sacrifice his own political capital to do the right thing. And he did this not only, you know, with regard to Iran, he did this in his dealings with Israel, which is why he is so unpopular in Israel even to this day. He did this repeatedly on domestic issues. He was the kind of rare politician who decided that once he had achieved political power, he was going to do the righteous thing. 
And his wife, uh, you know, constantly was nagging him, you know, Jimmy, please, why don't you postpone some of these more difficult issues like the (laughs) Panama Canal Treaty or Middle East peace to your second term? Don't you want to get reelected? And Carter, you know, insisted that he needed to do the right thing when he had power. And (laughs) it was, you know, it made him a righteous president. And sometimes in the extremely effective and powerful um, president, but it also led to uh, his political vulnerabilities, and uh, ultimately he, you know, lost his his chance for re-election because of the Iranian Revolution, because he had uh, ticked off liberals in his own party and stimulated a, a challenge by Ted Kennedy for the Democratic nomination. Um, you know, he alienated some of his own political allies in the eff- in an effort to do the right thing. Well, um, in terms of what he actually did do, and, you know, sort of ending off where we started with that idea that persists now of Carter as the, the nice guy, decent ex-president who was a, a shitty uh, president. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you write on Jimmy Carter, no this is your words, no modern president worked harder at the job and few achieved more than Carter. That's certainly not the way he gets treated by the media or opinionators and reflecting on great American presidents these days but, uh, from the past where Carter tends to always rate quite low. What are, what are they missing? Well, they're missing his, his achievements. Uh, they forget that this is the president who deregulated the American airline industry, allowing middle-class Americans to fly for the first time in large numbers. He deregulated the trucking and railroad industries. He uh, deregulated natural gas, which eventually led to America's boom in natural gas and and fracking and energy independence. Uh, He even made it possible for Americans to drink decent beer in <laughs> with, with uh, the deregulation of the alcohol industry, which allowed boutique breweries to s- pop up in cities all over America. He uh, mandated that seatbelts and airbags had to be built into every new American car manufactured, and this alone saved 10,000 lives every year. Uh, you know, abroad, he passed the Panama Canal Treaty, he negotiated a SALT II Treaty, he, he negotiated the Camp David peace accords that took Egypt off the battlefield for Israel for two generations. And yet Carter, despite all these achievements, because he was defeated, because he was a one-term president, because he was followed by Ronald Reagan and this sort of conservative revolution that changed America, he's regarded as politically ineffectual and uh, weak. But it's it's a ahistorical f- tale, and my book, I hope, does much to sort of set the record straight. Kai Bird, it's been a, a, a great conversation and a great education. I thank you for this today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kai Bird, an American historian, journalist, and columnist, and the acclaimed author of uh, his latest book, and this is from 2021, entitled The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Kai Bird, join me from Washington, D.C. today. 
for Smart Pega and Groovy Shia. It was so interesting to me. I mean, having read the book, you can see I was quite enthusiastic about it. It's right up my alley in terms of my uh, areas of interest. But this idea of Carter as tenacious mm-hmm. and not just the um, lovable, if bumbling, ex-president who uh, now builds houses, uh, I, I think is fascinating. Yeah, it was such a different approach to the way he's looked at. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to read the book now. Yeah, the, I mean, the book, to be fair, is not only about Iran. There's a mm-hmm. couple chapters about the hostage crisis, et cetera, but uh, it's about Carter, and it's not a it's not a small book. But uh, uh, but the stuff about Iran is 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 fascinating, and and how um, it was almost like acts of omission rather than commission. It was like Iran became mm-hmm. an afterthought to a certain extent when he's talking about how Carter's so focused on the peace uh, in Israel and yeah. Egypt uh, and, and with Begin and Sadat and, and then he makes a five minute phone call to the Shah and says hey remember human rights and yeah. uh, you know um, and and then the the disarray and I mean he's saying by 78 no one thinks there's going to be a revolution mm-hmm. it's amazing how um, <laughs> you know how how out of it the US was yes. but I guess even many Iranians didn't see that coming but I, I love the part where um he was saying that in Carter's diaries, he had some, I guess, ideas or premonitions, or he was he was saying that he had kind of seen it coming. Yes, and he foreshadowed yes. some of the events yes. that took place. I thought that was so. Which is ironic because Carter's the one guy that everybody exactly. makes fun of. That's right. Not seeing this coming, yeah. you know, and yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And of course, the deals being done with Reagan. Exactly. You know, beforehand, like this is a guy we could do the Khomeinists, you know, yeah, is a guy we could do business again. with and uh, all of that. Um, yeah, I- interesting period and uh, an interesting reflection from Kai Bird. Uh, if you're interested in that book, The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. Hey, before we leave today, uh, I should mention, um, first of all, next week, 25 band in the Rook studio. But uh, Talking to Persians London is now available uh, for streaming at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Rook Media. And we've been getting some letters. I promised to uh, give us the letters team there, Shia. Oh. All right. I promised that I would get to a couple of letters. Let me just, um, actually, now that I think about it, there's a spoiler alert in these letters. Uh-oh. Do, I, do we still care about that once the series is out? Once the show's available it's, uh, you can mention there's a spoiler yeah right? all right here's a spoiler <laughs> <laughs> give a warning it, here's a spoiler it's if you if you haven't watched it yet and you want to watch it and you, you want to be surprised then don't listen to these letters um this one from solmaz barakir uh solmaz says that was very touching and amazing story i really enjoyed watching how you went from looking for the house you were born in to being at a home with people you discovered great talks please make a second video on this trip still thirsty thirsty to have more drops thank you rook team we could make about a hundred more episodes of this trip but uh, we'll probably keep it to the one but that's that's amazing thank you so much this from mh uh watching Gian saying i wonder if i should knock on the door so this is when i go up to the house that i was born in there's a moment i'm with ali azimi and captain reza who's filming and uh I kind of go, we're standing there. I, you know, th- that's all we had planned for at that point was just to go and look right. at the house. And look, this is where I was in point at it. And then I, I say, well, maybe this is something I should I should go knock on the door. 
this person says, watching Gian say, I wonder if I should knock on the door or something, and then bracket something I'd be reluctant to do. And Captain Reza immediately encouraging him to do so while loudly chewing gum. <laughs> Did you hear that? That Captain Reza's chewing gum? Uh, all that followed was a lesson about life for me. Wow. When given the opportunity, knock on the door and yeah. see what's on the other Absolutely. side. Absolutely. Uh, and this from Arvine Arvine. Wow, I just finished watching the whole thing. And to say I loved it would definitely be an understatement. It was truly phenomenal. An amazing work of art. Hamich Kamolbud, uh, as we say in Farsi. Great works as always. I still can't believe that Gian returned to his childhood home and found that, spoiler alert, an Iranian family was living there. I really love the music selection too. Went perfectly with the flow of the film. 10 out of 10. Great. Thank you for that Arvine Arvine. Has two names that are the same. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you guys. I know you're both uh, clearly um, <laughs> possibly going to be uh, passing from this life <laughs> in, in the I next. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hope you're better by next week uh, and energetic. But thanks for doing the today's podcast with us. Uh, and uh, Groovy Shy, I feel better. Kick that COVID. Smart Pega, merci. Thank you. Thanks to those of you out there listening. This is full time for Rook for today. For all things Rook related, if you've not been there yet, it's also where you can find uh, Talking to Persians. Our series, The Contemporary History of Iran, former Rook episodes, our guests, our videos, our funnies, rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com is where you go and where you can also become a patron of our show and support us. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, talented Anahita, the fabulous Keon, Super Patty, Saw, Smart Pega, Alhai Merthod, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can always find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Find our show on Instagram at Rook Media. And in the meantime, as ever, this is for you, Pega. You know what I'm about to say. I do. Mizu Bashi.